Most of us want to be loved and accepted for what makes us unique, what makes us us. What we want is to be known for the value that we create and deliver, how we partner with people, for the relationships that we have, for the difference that we make. Never before in the history of humanity has the future been sitting right in front of us, screaming to be created. There's never been more receptivity. There's never been more technology. There's never been more opportunity. There's never been more willingness to re-examine how we live, work, and play than right now. What I think this means for those of us who are committed to making the world different is we have a unique opportunity. And the legendary people I know are getting busy in designing the future. Christopher Lockhead is one of the most legendary people that I know. As a three-time chief marketing officer in Silicon Valley, he reached the height of success in business. As a chart-topping podcaster, he continues to share his expertise in marketing and category creation, and his Follow Your Different podcast brings insightful guests and authentic dialogue to his audience. I'm a raving fan, and when it came time to choose a guest for the 200th episode of this podcast, I knew there would be no one more interesting than Christopher Lockhead. What follows here is an authentic and uncensored conversation between two guys who care about designing the future and making a difference. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get to it with my friend, Christopher Lockhead. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I am here today with Christopher Lockhead, and I am deeply honored to have him as uh, my guest for this commemorative 200th episode of uh, the Changing Lives podcast. Christopher was born and raised in Canada, in uh, Montreal, and came to the U.S. at age 27. He has been a three-time chief marketing officer in the Silicon Valley sold his last company for over $4 billion. And Chris basically retired at that point to be able to pursue many of his personal passions in life. And one of those things became podcasting. And uh, he is now the host of two chart-topping podcasts, Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and Lockhead on Marketing. Chris, thank you so much for making time to be here with me today. I really appreciate it. Dan, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be your 200th guest. I'm uh, not to sound too corny, but I'm incredibly proud of what you've done in podcasting. I'm a fan. I, of course, uh, recently loved your Dushka episode. I thought it was absolutely a mastery in podcasting, and I'm stoked to be here with you. Yeah, well, hey, thank you for the introduction to uh, Dushka Zapata as well. I mean, I've connected with her directly because of you. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate also the inspiration that you've provided as a elite podcaster. I mean, you're one of the reasons why I wanted to do this. And you're one of the reasons why I want to do this well. And I really appreciate the inspiration that you provide in that way. Thank you, brother. That's too kind of you to say, but thank you. Yeah. So I've made it to 200 episodes here. Woo-hoo! Crazy to think about. <laughs> so I definitely want to talk a little bit about podcasting today. What is it that you love about podcasting, Chris? Pretty much everything. <laughs> I think, first of all, an incredibly innovative medium. And I love it when people try new things in podcasting, new genres in podcasting. 
And so I applaud anybody doing anything sort of interesting in podcasting. And I am particularly a fan, of course, of the Authentic Dialogue podcast. And the interesting thing to me about that is a lot of people talk about the negativity of technology and smartphones and social media and so forth, and uh, how that's contributed to uh, the collective ADHD of the world. Well, that may be true. The interesting thing with podcasting and, and specifically dialogue podcasts like yours and, and mine and many others is that isn't it fascinating that the technology that people point to for sort of creating attention deficit amongst many is the medium that is bringing back a word that for decades most people didn't even know existed, and that word is conversationalist. Right? There was a point in time where one of the things people aspired to be was a good conversationalist. And so podcasts are really the only medium for authentic dialogue, other than actually, of course, sitting down with an individual and to have that in an unedited way. And there's a, there's a natural beauty and a natural arc to a conversation. And if it's done well for the listener, and I was a podcast super consumer long before I became a podcaster. There's an interesting thing that happens. You can have this eavesdropping experience, like you're sitting in a diner and in the booth next to you, there's some really great conversation going on and you're starting to eavesdrop. And then if it's a great dialogue podcast, somewhere at about the 20 minute mark, your brain flips from being an eavesdropper to it feels like you're in the conversation yourself. And if it's a great dialogue podcast, a legendary one, at the end of the episode, I find myself going, hey, I'm not done yet. Like, <laughs> And so and we can talk about other categories of podcasts, but as, as it relates to where my heart really is, which is with dialogue podcasts, I love the fact that we can go deep with legendary people just like you do on every episode of Changing Lives. Yeah. Well, I really like that analogy of the being able to eavesdrop on a legendary conversation uh, with you know two great people and the whole idea of an authentic dialogue is certainly what what I'm passionate about as well it's what I enjoy doing as well an interesting twist for me is that I'm actually quite introverted and so this medium for me it requires a little bit of energy in terms of preparation and thinking about you know how do I want this conversation to go I always tell my guests not to over-prepare. I don't want a scripted conversation, but I do in my own mind have to think about, you know, what are some of the, the subjects that I want to make sure come out? How can I phrase a particular question? And so for me, it requires a ton of preparation to feel like I'm on point with this sort of a, a dialogue you know, type of podcast. Yeah, I understand that. I'm somebody who, you know, my grandmother used to say, I have the gift of the gab or I kiss the Blarney Stone. Right. And so I'm comfortable in conversation. And I'm one of those people who, back in the old days when you could go to an airport, you know, I'd be standing in the airport or, or anywhere in the world and people just come up to me and talk to me, you know, so I've sort of always been that way. But, but with podcasting, even though I'm more natural that way and sort of a spontaneous conversation, I, like you, do a tremendous amount of research as well. You know, we have a, a lot of top-tier authors on, like Dushka and many others. Well, I read the books. And I may not read every word of every page, but I mean, I dig into it. 
And even if it's not an author, if it's somebody I don't know, we have a lot of guests on that I do know, but if it's a new person for me, I'll do my homework on that person. And I find that's really good to ground me in who they are, what their work's about. However, that said, Dan, what I do, and I sometimes I'll even write out some questions I might want to ask this person. You know, for example, we recently had Dr. Avi Loban, who is Harvard's top astronomer, and he is the first scientist with anywhere near this the pedigree that he has to come out and say, we've been visited by aliens and here's the proof. And so I read his book. He's got a great book out called Extraterrestrial that I highly recommend. And, uh, and I wrote a bunch of questions that I want to ask him. But the minute we hit record, I throw all that out. And I just, I think a legendary dialogue is a dance. And so I just, at that point, I forget all my prep. And I just try to be in a conversation with a wonderful guest. Yeah. That sounds like it was a very interesting conversation that you're able to have. And did it go a direction that you didn't expect? It went several directions that I didn't expect it to go for sure. And the other thing I love about that kind of a guest, because we look for guests that are not necessarily, you know, somebody that's doing a podcast tour and is going to go on 200 podcasts. I mean, sometimes we have folks like that for sure. But the interesting thing with Professor Loeb, I read about him, but this was before his book came out and I was shocked then that this wasn't giant front page news and most of the traditional media wasn't paying attention to it. And so he came on our podcast. We had an incredible conversation. And about a month after the fact, the economist did a big piece on him and he's now getting more mainstream attention, which I think is wonderful. And look, I don't know whether being on our podcast had anything to do with the economist or not, but what I do know is I love being part of celebrating legendary people's work, shining a light on things, thus the word different, right? And the beauty of a podcast is if you were to watch Professor Loeb, I'll give you another example. We've had four-star general Stanley McChrystal on multiple times, and he's a legendary, legendary American and human being. I've heard this, yeah. And he's been featured on 60 Minutes and all these super big ding-dong shows. And when he goes on 60 Minutes, they follow him around for two weeks or a week with a camera crew and all this sort of stuff. And then when you and I watch it on 60 Minutes, you get seven minutes, eight minutes. And so whether it's Professor Loeb, Dushka, or he prefers to be called Stan, (laughs) Stan, the only way to go deep is in a podcast other than sitting down yourself with them. There's no other medium we have. And there's serendipity in a conversation that doesn't happen in a traditional interview. And so I love the beauty of that. I was very disheartened and I would say even angry this last election season, Dan, where we'd have all these stupid debates. I was just about to swear. Um, Do you want me to not swear on this podcast or is it okay with you if I swear? You tell me I can be a good boy if you want me to. Chris, you should be yourself as you always are. Okay. (laughs) So I I was fucking furious with these debates because here we have president uh, candidates to be president of our country. And let's have two minutes on health care and 30 seconds for a response. And one of the things you hear on TV all the time is, well, well, Susie, we'll just have to leave it there. Well, this is insane. On a podcast, there's no time restriction. We shouldn't have to leave it there. We want an unconstrained conversation. And we never got that. 
And that to me is complete intergalactic bullshit. And so I think the only way to really, if you're interested in somebody or something, the only way to go deep is to have a real conversation. And the only medium for that is podcasting. Yeah. I love that, Chris. On a podcast too, like if somebody is not answering the question or doesn't answer the question, right? You can rephrase it. You can ask it again. You can continue to probe, right? To be able to pull out what it is you're looking for. Whereas like on those debates, as you were saying, there were times where the moderator would ask a question about something, you know, like, as you said, like healthcare and the candidate would answer something completely different. They would just take their time to say, you know, I'm going to take my time to answer the last question from, you know, six minutes ago. And we're going to talk about that instead. And they never even got to what was being asked and they were allowed to, to, you know, have that happen. So, well, and to your point, and this is something most people don't realize every interview you and I have ever heard is deeply inauthentic by design for a couple big reasons. You just mentioned one of them. People who do a lot of media are trained to, and this is the PR term that PR coaches and communication coaches often use, bridge back to their talking points. So you asked me a question about things going on in Europe, and I want to talk about what's going on in Silicon Valley. And I say, well, you know, that's a really interesting question, Dan. It reminds me of what's going on in Silicon Valley right now. And I didn't answer your question because I'm bridging back to my three key points. Mm -hmm. The host of an interview show, to your point earlier, shows up with a pre-configured narrative that they're going to try and drive. So what we have in an interview is a guest with their talking media trained talking points and a pre-configured narrative by the host and or the producers. And what we witness is a clash of that. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this, this made me fucking nuts after the Super Bowl. I remember watching Michael Strahan on Good Morning America interview Gronk. And if you pay attention where there's video and or audio, you can see and hear the cuts. You see the cuts, yeah. And so what most people don't realize about an interview is after the conversation happens, a producer and an editor decide what they want you to see. And the reality is context is more important than content. And so without knowing what they said before and without knowing what they said after, you just get this cut. And then you get another cut and another cut and another cut. The producers are feeding you only what they want you to hear. And you, you have very little context for what's going on. And so every interview is deeply, deeply inauthentic. I think it's fucking bullshit. I can't listen to them anymore. I want real conversation. And I think if you care about something and you have more than an ADHD attention span, then that's why dialogue podcasts have become so massively popular. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, you said something about most interview type conversations being inauthentic. And one of the things that I admire most about you, Christopher, is that you are truly authentic. And I mentioned this in the podcast episode with Dushka. I think I, I said you are unapologetically authentic, which is why I told you, like, of course you could swear, Chris. I mean, why would you not, right? You are unapologetically authentic as a human being. And I think that there's something that is very endearing about that. As you have mentioned in your own, you know, the, the things that you say about yourself that I think are really hilarious are like, you know, where you, where you quote the review that says off-putting to some. <laughs> you might be off-putting to some, but you are 
beloved by most because you are unapologetically authentic. And I, I would love to ask you, you know, how did that evolve in your life? Like where and when in your life do you feel like you found the courage to sort of walk your own path? Well, that's kind of you to say thank you. And by the way, it comes with this real cost. I said and did a handful of things in 2020 that had some pretty powerful ramifications, none of which, by the way, I give a shit about. And we can talk about that if you like. But the answer to your question is, I got thrown out of school at 18. You know, I have four or five different learning differences, uh, dyslexia, dyscalculia, et cetera. I roll them all together and call it dysphuclia. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) There's power in owning shit, right? The good, the bad, and all of it. And, And the truth is, learning differences aren't a negative. It drives me insane in the state of California that kids who have learning differences like dyslexia, dyscalculia, executive function disorder, ADHD, et cetera, et cetera, have to be diagnosed with a fucking disability to get the extra support they need. Because the truth is, we just have different brains. But anyway, to answer your question, so at 18, I had two options. Manual labor. I was working part-time at a hospital. My mom got me a job at the hospital she was working at as an orderly. So I could either shave guys' balls for a living or I could start a company. And so with a lot of help from my friend Jack, who was already in the technology business, he encouraged me to join him and start a company. And we did. So that's how I got started. And when I started, Dan, I played the part of what I thought a business person or an entrepreneur was. I didn't know what it was. I didn't have examples in really in my family. And so I was sort of acting. And there were a few people, mentors, like you have mentored so many, and you have inspired so many. And one of the things I think you inspire people to do is be themselves. You inspire me to be myself. Having seen you speak, it's a magical thing to see you on stage. And so there were a few folks who I looked up to early in my career. And I realized, you know what? This is bullshit. I'm I'm not going to pretend to be whatever I thought people wanted me to be. And that was probably, uh, you know, I was in my early 20s, you know, maybe 22, 23 in that range. And the minute I let go of that, my entire life changed and my professional life changed profoundly. How would you counsel somebody on how to manifest that in their life? Because I feel like a lot of the young people that I work with they're trained to sort of conform to certain ways of being because that's what gets people to make be comfortable with you or to it helps people get ahead in their career because they're you know connecting with their their boss i.e kissing ass or whatever you might want to call it but uh how does a young person find the courage to be their own self that's a great question and it's i think it's a nuanced thing to think about So on one hand, there are social norms and there are expectations for certain people in certain kinds of roles in society and business, salespeople, executives, et cetera, et cetera. I think we have to be aware of those things. We we can't be completely ignorant of them. However, being constrained by them is a mistake. So I think that's the, the first piece to think about. The second one is I realized early 
know, there's an outrageous component of who I am and my personality and it's natural. I don't necessarily put it on. It comes from a passionate place. It comes from an excited place. Sometimes it comes from an angry place. Anger is my happy place. We can talk about that if you like, but I own my anger. And so we have to realize that we must take responsibility for our words and our actions. And so one of the things I learned as an early young man was if I was going to give myself permission to be fully self-expressed, which I wanted to do, I also had to be responsible for it. And I also had to realize no matter how responsible I was going to be for my words and actions, I was going to fuck up from time to time. I was going to say something stupid. I was going to offend somebody. I was, And so I realized that and said, you know what? On one hand, hey, buddy, you got to pay attention and be responsible. But on the other hand, you also got to let yourself go. And when you fuck up, you have to have the courage to say, I'm sorry. So I sort of figured all that out in my early 20s. And then I just let myself rip and let the cards fall where they may. And, you know, I've had to apologize for saying some stupid things. And obviously there's things I said and did when I was 27 or 32 that I would, uh, would not have done today. But I think all that's okay. I didn't, none of anything, none of that stuff I did from a malicious place. And I think most people can tell that. And so I think if we give ourselves permission to be ourselves and we accept responsibility and we realize from time to time, if we let ourselves really rip from time to time, we're going to have to say, oh, that came out wrong. Or I apologize or what have you and have that be okay. Yeah, that was really powerful. Just what you were saying right there, Christopher. I grapple with some of this stuff in how to apply it in my own world today because the culture of society now, there's this element of like what people call cancel culture where, you know, one mistake and all of a sudden, you know, so much of what you've done can be torn down. Whereas my, my perspective is I like to be as authentic as I can. I like to be willing to put thoughts out there that might be against the grain. I like to be willing to have discussions with people, maybe be contrarian to try to arrive at what is the truth. And, and I hope that people who know me can look at many years of history or many years of my character or whatever it might be to say, okay, well, you know, Dan can say that and we can talk about that and that's okay. I'm not going to judge that. But there are a lot of people who do judge and who do think we're a certain way because of a one singular comment that we've made in a conversation or a social media thread or whatever. And so it's sort of a, it's kind of a fine line to try to walk that I have challenges with, but I just feel like you've arrived at a point in who you are where you're just comfortable crossing whatever line might, might even be there because you just, uh, as I said, you're just unapologetically who you are. And I think that, uh, I think that's very courageous. Thank you. In some ways, I have no choice. So it, it's not as courageous as it might sound. <laughs> it also comes from being grounded. It comes from the ability to say, I'm sorry, if you do get it wrong. And it also comes from on this cancel culture thing. It also comes from the ability to say, hey, go fuck yourself. And I'm not shy to say it. <laughs> it's bold of you to be able to say it. And it's again, like this is just one of those things I feel like as a, uh, you know, somebody finding my way here in the podcasting world. And it's a little more challenging for me to think about how I would handle something like that. I think about it in my own 
company or my own organization, I have a certain level of credibility where I think I can have virtually any conversation with, with most any person very directly and, and would be comfortable with it. But it's hard. You know, like I said, it's a, it's a courageous thing about you that I think people admire about you, Christopher. Well, and I do it all the time. I recently got a, a pitch from a PR person pitching me two podcasters who do a podcast together that's a true crime podcast about murder and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And if this person had done five fucking seconds of research on me, they would have known. They would have known about Tushar. For context, for the listeners, Chris's good friend and neighbor, Tushar, was kidnapped from his home and murdered. And the case took about seven months for the Santa Cruz police to solve. Yes. And I said to them, shame on you. The true crime podcast category is pure fucking evil because it damages families of murder victims and it makes celebrities out of fucking killers. Mm -hmm. And how dare you get in my inbox about this? You didn't do one second of homework on me. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Look, I don't always take such an aggressive stance. As a matter of fact, I normally do not. When I, uh, particularly on social media, Dan, when I'm going to take an opposing position to somebody, I often write, please hear kindness in my voice as you read what you're about to read. I try to go the extra mile because with every interaction I have that's digital, I assume that it's physical. Would I say this to this person in person? And if you attack me, I'm a fighter. I'm a warrior. You're going to get it. And if you do something stupid or something ignorant, you're going to get it. But if you want to have an authentic dialogue with me and you, you're the polar opposite of where I am, I'll have that with you all day. If you are going to want to have an authentic dialogue and a rigorous conversation with me and you and I have a different point of view, I love that conversation. And I will love you at the end of that conversation, even if we're diametrically opposed. And so this is the, the thing that's sort of interesting in this world that we live in today. On one hand, my position is, if you want to have a civil discourse with me, if you want to have an authentic dialogue with me, I don't care what your position is. Let's have it. On the other hand, you want to attack me. You want to be ignorant. You want to be stupid. You attack a warrior, you're going to get smashed. Yep, exactly. I would never want to be on your bad side, Chris. Yeah, you never will. I'm in love with you. (laughs) (laughs) So you rebranded your podcast after... Uh, initially building it up, you rebranded it to follow your different, which is obviously unique in and of itself as a title. How did you come up with that? And what does it mean to you? Follow your different? Well, one of the things we hear a lot, of course, is follow your passion. And what does that mean? It's, I don't think it's very helpful. And a lot of people end up working in things that in the beginning, this is the fallacy with follow your passion. Some of us don't know what we're passionate about. I didn't know I'd be passionate about surfing until I tried surfing. I didn't know that that would be a passion. And so when we say to somebody, well, follow your passion, they say, well, what's my passion? We don't know. We have to go discover our passion. So that's the first piece. The second piece is on a personal level, Dan, we connect on our similarities in many ways, which is great. You and I share some core values. That's really, really important. That allows us to connect as human beings. And I respect you for that. And so our similarities are important. However, that said, most of us want to be loved and accepted 
for what makes us unique, what makes us us. Mm. So it's that different that I'm talking about as a human being. What makes Dan, Dan? Because there's only one of you, right? And you may have similarities with lots of other people. You have lots of similarities with me, but there's lots of differences. And the similarities are always fun. If we have shared interest, you and I have shared interest in business and sales and marketing and personal development and growing companies. And we care about the world and we care about where we live. And you know, we have a lot of similarities we connect on. And that's all very powerful. And there are things that are unique to me, uh, that are unique to you, that are very different from me. And so all of us want to be loved and accepted for those differences so that we can be ourselves. So that's on the personal side. In business, it turns out the most legendary entrepreneurs, the most legendary creators, the most legendary salespeople, the most legendary innovators were not doing something that was incrementally better. They were doing something that was exponentially different. Mm. The people you and I admire the most are the people who broke and took new ground. And in order to break and take new ground, you must try something different. And in a business context, the most legendary people become known for a niche that they own. We say Bob Marley, reggae. Right. Right. So this celebration of the different, different people, what makes us uniquely us, and what different businesses, different ideas that move the world forward in an exponential way. Those are, to me, endlessly interesting and endlessly powerful. That uh, was a great explanation of what follow your different means to you. And, and I just, I, I really like what you said about how people want to be loved and appreciated for what makes them unique. I think we all have some of our own elements of what follow your different could mean to us. And then, you know, one of the things that you, are always promoting is the whole idea of category design in your marketing podcasts and of of owning a niche, right? Of something that's unique about you. One of my podcast guests called it your personal monopoly, right? What is really unique that you have that not everybody else has? And I just think it, it makes so much sense for people to try to discover what that is in their life. What is their personal monopoly what is the unique value they can bring to the world that you know others don't bring as well as they do or others won't bring that to me is a is an interesting viewpoint on follow your different in that theme one of my favorite quotes is from the legendary kurt cobain who famously said they laugh at me because i'm different and i laugh at them because they're all the same yeah. and most of us you know on the personal side Whenever we compare ourselves to others, we're in pain. If I compare my career to your career and I go, well, you know, I've never achieved the kinds of things Dan has achieved as a sales leader and thought leader and personal development. And you've been with one company for so long and you've built, helped build that culture. And, you know, there's many, many things that you've achieved that I have not achieved. And if I compare myself on that dimension to you, I'm going to be disempowered. I'm going to be depressed. I, I'm not going to feel good. If I compare my surfing to Kelly Slater's surfing, I'll never surf again. I got a bunch of guitars around here. I make a noise on guitar. I'm not really a guitar player. I make a noise. If I compare my guitar playing to Eddie Van Halen or Mark Knopfler or pick a guitar, the Slash, whoever you want to pick, Chuck Berry, I'm never going to pick up a guitar again. But if I, so, 
this comparison game is a one-way path to misery. That's on the personal level. Turns out in business, as it relates to category design, the most legendary innovators did not want to compare themselves to what came before. They wanted all others to be compared to them. Sarah Blakely, when she launches Spanx, she calls it a new invention. She doesn't call it a girdle 2.0. She gives it a new name so that it has a dis- it's distinct from everything else. She calls it shapewear, genius category design, right? Her packaging, her branding, all that stuff, very different than traditional. And look, undergarments that sort of hold you in and make you look better have been around, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks after Adam and Eve decided to put on clothes. <laughs> so, you know, on that dimension, there's nothing new about what she's doing. But on another dimension, it's completely new because it was a breakthrough product and it continues to be. And she had the insight and the courage to say this is a new invention and to name it. People name it, frame it and claim it, right? Legends do that. In so doing, she became one of the greatest self-made entrepreneurial billionaires in American history, right? And so whether it's on the personal side, I compare myself to you and I cause misery for myself. And of course, we never compare ourselves to others on the dimension that the other sucks. We always compare ourselves on the dimension to the other that the other is legendary at, right? If we compare ourselves to Serena Williams on tennis, we're never going to play tennis again. You know, maybe on some other dimension, we outperform her, right? But we don't think about it that way. But regardless, it's all stupid, right? And so on the personal side, it causes pain. On the business side, it causes failure because legendary businesses don't play a comparison game. They play a choice game. Us or nothing else, you choose. We're going to pizza or ice cream. It's a choice, right? And so when we do that, we distinguish ourselves, we differentiate ourselves, and we become known for what, uh, as an individual, what makes us unique and the unique problems that we solve and the unique value we create in our career and in our work. It turns out that's true for businesses too. The company that designs the category is best positioned to dominate it. And if they can execute, and we did a, a massive data science research project for my first book, where we discovered that the company that designs the category earns 76% of the total value created. So the category queen earns two-thirds of the economics in the space. And so it turns out most people in business are competing for a quarter of the category and they don't even fucking know it. They're like rats on the Titanic fighting for table scraps because... The category queen takes two thirds of the economics. And so would you rather be the 47th greatest reggae band in history or would you rather pioneer a new category where you can be distinct? Mm. So powerful. And it's, it's a, as you're speaking, I'm just here thinking and my wheels are turning about uh, how anyone who's listening could begin to identify what are they known for? What would people say they are best at? What would people say they are the best that anyone knows at, really unique at? And as people can begin to identify what that is, they can accentuate what that is in their business and in their life in order to be more successful from a financial point of view, but also just in order to be more fulfilled 
that they're bringing their best gifts to the world. Yes, absolutely. And so what can we be legendary at? And in specific, if you drill into it, what can we be legendary at that produces massive value that few others can be legendary at? Mm. Because that's really what drives this from a, from a career perspective. And it's also true from a business perspective. Businesses, the reason Tesla has the market cap that they have is they have convinced the world that the problem that they solve is a massive, strategic, urgent problem and that they've solved it in an extraordinarily unique way and that they're very hard to replace. So in other words, this, the problem slash opportunity that they, that they evangelize has become massively important and they have strategically positioned themselves as unique in their ability to solve that strategic opportunity or problem. As such, they're one of the most valuable companies on planet Earth. And we can do that ourselves in our careers and in our lives. We can do it with massive, what I lovingly refer to as small, uh, big E entrepreneurs. And small E entrepreneurs can do this too. I, uh, you you want to hear a, snor- a story? This is, this is the one I just learned about most recently. Yeah. Okay. So there's this gal. She appears to be a younger gal and she's into fitness and all this. I forget her name now. And she's the founder of this company called Mobot, M-O-B-O-T. And Mobot, and she had this very simple insight. All legendary category designers start this way, which is before and after a workout, you really want this foam roller so that you can help make yourself more supple and more bendy, right? Because flexibility really matters. And at the same time, if you're somebody who trains and does athletic things, drinking a lot of water is important. So she had this, aha, what if we made a foam roller that was a water bottle? And that's what a Mobot is. And if you go to Mobot.com, and this is legendary category design, she calls it the original two-in-one foam roller water bottle. And she says, Mobot is a lightweight and easy to use, providing stress release at your fingertips. Think of it as having your own personal masseuse, no appointment necessary, plus all the benefits of foam rolling are multiplied when you hydrate. (laughs) That's genius category design. She's got it all. She's got a legendary breakthrough product and she's named it and claimed it. And what I just read to you is on the cover of her homepage. Very cool. I like that. That's an interesting, uh, interesting way of promoting what she's doing right there. I think that's, uh, that's excellent. You referenced what you call big E entrepreneur, little E entrepreneur. And I know you wrote two books that people can reference on these topics, the big E book for people who want to build something that's the next Google or the next Apple, the next Tesla is your book play bigger. And the book for the little e entrepreneur that wants to figure out, you know, what is their piece in this world that they can own? What is their personal monopoly, so to speak, is a niche down. And, you know, reading niche down was a major inspiration for me in starting this podcast because I knew that I I wanted to do a podcast and I wanted to do something in the area of, you know, content distribution, et cetera. And I just decided that I would niche my podcast directly at the vector marketing cutco audience. 
because it's, first of all, it's a big enough audience that, you know, owning that niche would be positive. And also it's an audience in which I have a great deal of credibility and influence since I've been working with the company for 30 plus years. And that's sort of how the podcast uh, started and and was uh, directed toward the Cutco Vector audience. Well, and what you did is legendary category design, and you just described it, right? You took your different. You've been a leader in the company for 30 years. This is a place that you love. It's not just where you work. You built untold relationships. There are countless people who consider you their mentor. I know a handful of them myself. And you said, I want to do a legendary podcast for these people. And so if you're a technology salesperson, you might not listen to Changing Lives. Maybe you would. There's a lot to learn. But here's the interesting thing that that this sort of makes people's brain hurt. But if you think about it, it, it's actually true. The tighter the niche, the broader the appeal. The tighter the niche, the broader the appeal. Because you own something in people's mind. You stand for something, right? John Mellencamp famously saying, you got to stand for something or you're going to fall for anything, right? And when we become known for one thing, it can expand. Here's a great example. On the Big E side, Mark Benioff starts a company called Salesforce, salesforce.com. Well, guess what? Today, salesforce.com sells a lot of marketing software, sells a lot of analytical software, sells a lot of customer service software, right? And so he starts off with a very tight category, a very tight niche, Salesforce automation. But now it's CRM, which is, of course, a much bigger category than Salesforce automation. Salesforce automation is actually a subcategory of CRM, right? And he's the category king of CRM. So he starts off at a niche He absolutely nails it and then expands. Another great example of this is Under Armour. Under Armour, as the name suggests, starts off as clothing that we wear under our uniform to soak up the sweat and so forth and so on, right? Well, today you can buy Under Armour shoes. So you nail the niche and then it allows you, once you're beloved in the category that you are the queen or king of, you then earn the right to expand. And today, you'd never name Salesforce Salesforce. You'd never name Under Armour Under Armour. Those names don't make sense given their product lines and given the breadth of categories they play in. But the reason it works is they started with a super tight niche and they earned the right, so to speak, to become a trusted provider to their customers. Yeah. Excellent point. Excellent point. That's such good stuff for people to chew on and think about how it might apply to them and what they're doing and what they're building in their life or in their business. I know, Chris, that uh, we're both pretty passionate about making the world a better place. And when you think about that idea or that that concept, what strikes you as uh, the thing that you would most like to make better about the world? If you could wave a magic wand and have uh, you know a systemic challenge solved, you know what would uh, what comes to your mind? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning with podcasting. I'm very concerned, Dan, and we saw it in the last election cycle in the United States. We've lost the ability to have authentic conversation and dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. And I know this sounds overly dramatic, but we saw it on, on January 6th. We will either have civil discourse or we will have civil war. It's that simple. 
if you and I have a, a dispute, a difference, we will either talk it out respectfully and come to some resolution or we'll fight. That's if you play it out to its ultimate end. And all this yelling is insane. Why can't we have a conversation? Pick a topic. We talked about healthcare earlier. Okay, well, I think most people in the United States care about healthcare. I think most people in the United States care about their own health, the health of their family. And you know what? I think most people care about the health of their community and the health of their fellow Americans. So if you start there and you say, okay, well, let's say most good people care about that. Say, okay, how do we design a healthcare system that works? And we're going to argue tooth and nail about it. However, it's the dynamic push and pull, left and right, different ideas. We need that. It makes us stronger. Steel sharpens steel. We need to have the argument. We need to debate, right? There are Republican ideas that are legendary ideas that I subscribe to. Freedom, small government, strong on military, strong on law enforcement, because without laws, you know, et cetera. There are Democratic ideas that I deeply subscribe to around equality around justice, and so forth. And so, and I think many of us are this way. And my fear, Dan, what's going on in the United States is there's 10 or 20%, I don't know, it's hard to know for sure, but it's not giant numbers on either side of the political spectrum who are sucking up all the oxygen. And I say, hey, fuck you. Where's the radical middle? And why are we party focused? Listen. Sometimes Republicans do legendary things and they should be celebrated and acknowledged for it and thanked for it. Same thing with Democrats. And sometimes they do terrible, stupid fucking things. And why is it if you're a Democrat, when your people do dumb things, we downplay it. And when their people do dumb things, we upplay it. And vice What? This is all insanity. It's complete insanity. We've lost our minds. And so my dream is that authentic dialogue and civil discourse come back. And sure, we fight tooth and nail. That's okay. We can argue about healthcare. We can argue about defense. We can argue about immigration. We can argue about employment. We can argue about homelessness. We can argue about whatever you want to argue about. Let's have it, right? So that we can form a, a better union. But this insanity on the far side of ever, you know, this is Yuval Harari, the author of one of the greatest books of the modern era, Sapiens was on Dak Shepard's podcast a while back uh, in the last six months or so. And he made a very interesting uh, observation that has rattled in my brain ever since. And he said, this is the first time in American history that the enemy of America is other Americans. Mm. And so unless we make a choice to celebrate the different, to have authentic dialogue, to be willing to say we're wrong, it used to be in politics, if you change your mind on something today, you're a flip-flopper. You know what that used to be called? Learning. Evolving. Yes. So that's, that's a really big one for me. And I'm, frankly, I'm very worried about our country, about this, about party first and country second. It's insane to me. So that's a big one. And then another big one that I've been on is if you do any homework at all, you will realize and I know there's a lot of people that don't like this when I say this. There fucking is systemic racism in this country. And there's racism in a lot of places 
But one that I would like to highlight because it's an area I'm focused on is business. And so me and a handful of other legendary guys started by my friend, Eddie Yoon. So I credit where credit is due. He, he recruited me. We wrote this piece for Harvard Business Review. We were, we were inspired by Netflix and Costco and a handful of other early companies in this movement. What they started to realize was that um, there's a, I forget what the number is. It's around 20. There are only a very small number of black owned banks in the United States. And those black owned banks tend to do business with people who are not banked already or underbanked, underserved by traditional, and I'll just call them what they are, white run banks. And if you look at it now, uh, let me see if I can pop this up as, uh, and get the exact number. And if you're not disgusted by this, oh shit, it's on my phone, not on my computer. It's the net worth of the average African-American home versus the uh, average white home. And it's, I might be wrong, but it's like 17 grand versus 117 grand. Like it's, the chasm is massive. And so if we want social justice in this country, if we want equality in this country, if we want the American dream in this country, equal access to opportunity through equal access to capital matters tremendously. And the aha is, and this is why we're so passionate about this thing we call justice deposits. When you make a deposit in a black-owned bank, that black-owned bank now has more money to make out loans. And every loan is a dream coming true. It's somebody buying a home. It's somebody retiring education debt. It's somebody consolidating credit card debt. It's somebody who can now buy a car. It's whatever it is they're doing in their life to forward their life. Loans are dreams. And the more money black-owned banks have, the more dreams they can help make come true for people who have been fucked over by a racist banking system. And so we are on a mission to get $125 billion moved into black-owned banks over the next handful of years. And if we can do that together, we will change the future of America. And I believe if there's inequality for one, there's inequality for all. And so we're on a mission to encourage people to put 10% of your money in a black-owned bank. Do that in your company. Do that yourself. We just had Terry Williams on my podcast. She's the president of One United Bank. Incredible woman. Well, go to One United Bank, put some money in there, get a credit card, get a checking account, do some business with them. And if all of us are willing to do that, and there's lots of other good black banks that she just happens to be a black banker that I know, and I know runs a wonderful institution, her and her husband, actually, which makes it even more fun for me. But I think asking yourself the question, where do legends bank? And if Netflix can move you know, many tens of millions of dollars into black owned banks, then your company can too. And if high net worth individuals and individuals of any kind say, you know what? I'm going to move $10,000 into a black-owned bank. I'm going to move my check checking account or I'm going to open up a, my, my second credit card or whatever. All of those things will make a difference in bolstering the ability of black banks to make loans and to support a massively underserved community. And uh, frankly, in my opinion, right or wrong. And so we're trying to encourage people to consider that. Yeah. I love what you're doing there in terms of just providing somebody, uh, providing people with a way that they can make a difference. Um, there's a tendency most people have, I believe, when we think about the big problems of the world, 
um, they feel like, well, what can I do about this? Or, you know, somebody needs to do something about this. And I just love the idea that I am somebody, right? You are somebody, we all are somebody. And we all, if we all do some small part in solving this problem and other problems in the world, that together we can make the world a much greater place for everyone. And that, that just circles back to all of us individually as well. Yes, the butterfly effect is real. And in the case of a justice deposit, the interesting thing about it is there's this thing the federal government has called the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And it's an insurance company that insures deposits in banks up to $250,000. So when you move your money from, I'll just pick one who has a history of asshole behavior, Wells Fargo, absolute criminal fucks, okay? (laughs) If everybody took their money out of Wells Fargo and put it in One United, on a personal level, if One United, God forbid, were to fail, well, your deposits are protected up to $250,000. That's point A. And point B, most banks pay about the same interest rate on deposits. I think, don't quote me for sure, but I think uh, One United's giving a little bit better than now the assholes at Wells Fargo right now. But regardless, most banks are within a hair of each other in terms of what interest they pay. Most banks have very similar products. And so my point is, as a consumer of banking services, there's not a lot of difference between the asshole criminals at Wells Fargo and One United and the other black-owned and black-run banks. And so it's not a charity thing. It's a functioning bank. You Credit cards and checks and payments and all the stuff that you do with your bank, right? And so why wouldn't you move at least part of your banking into a bank that you know is doing business with a population who has absolutely been fucked over by the banking system? Mm. Great, great idea, Chris. And uh, I, th- I just think, uh, again, everybody can think about what part could I play in solving whatever problems you're most passionate about, whether it be access to capital for African-American communities or whether it be the civil discourse issue that I know that you and I are both extremely passionate about that one. I loved in that my episode with Dushka Zapata, where we just talked about not taking things personally, and that that's where being able to have discourse begins. And I also felt like one of my favorite quotes is what's right is more important than who's right. And if we're seeking truth, versus trying to hold on to our ego, then we're all able to evolve. We're all able to apologize when we're wrong. We're willing to have you know conversations and dialogue where we explore different uh, possibilities uh, in the pursuit of truth. And I think it, it, all of us should should be a little bit more like scientists from time to time. A scientist, when they're you know engaged in an experiment, they don't give a shit if they're right. They propose a hypothesis and then they try to find out is it right or is it not. They try to find out what's the truth. And if we could all be pursuing truth more than worrying about being right and worrying about our own egos, then we can have conversations, we can evolve, we can challenge someone's position, we can be contrarian and discuss things and then figure out, well, okay, what is correct here? What is the truth here? And that 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 approach to me would be a great approach for people to take to make our society more successful. Amen. Hallelujah. And interesting to that point, my new friend, Dr. Avi Loeb, the Harvard's top astronomer who discovered this alien craft that came from out of our, it's, it's the first uh, anything that we know of that came from out of our solar system 
visited us and took off. And his point of view is exactly what you just said, which is they were able to prove that it's not a comet and it's not an asteroid and it is the first known thing (laughs) to come from out of our solar system and leave that we are aware of. It got the name Oumuamua, which is a Hawaiian word. I forget exactly what it means, but it, it means like visitor or something along those lines because it was spotted by a powerful uh, telescopes in Hawaii. And Professor Avi's point of view is exactly what you just said. He said, scientists make the mistake of not including the public in the sausage making. It's like, can I prove it was an alien craft? No. But I can prove it was nothing that we've ever seen before. It had characteristics that were different. It did a bunch of different shit. I could explain some of it if you care. And his perspective is, we know it, what it's not. And so let's assume that that's what it was until we can prove that it was some other thing. Because if we assume, if we solve for the possibility that it was an alien craft, it opens the aperture in our thinking. And to your point, he said publicly, if tomorrow we discover that it wasn't, that it was some new thing or whatever, whatever it is that we fucking discover, then so that so be it. He's not attached to being right that Oumuamua was an alien craft. He's just saying it wasn't anything we understand. And so maybe if we assume that it was an alien craft, it'll open the aperture in terms of how we think about it. Yeah. Yep. I remember now seeing this in The Economist. It's great that The Economist gave some credence to this because The Economist, in my view, has a tremendous amount of credibility. It's one of the very few publications I, I read regularly. I remember the picture is like this oblong looked like a big rock, but it was long and narrow. And it just an interesting, interesting uh, occurrence for us to, to probe. And- the other thing, just as a side note, I didn't know this until uh, Professor Avi educated me. Do you know how many planets there are that are like Earth? In our solar system, there's none, but I... In the I, universe. I was, I was uh, actually just saw a documentary on this about the evolution of Earth and how Earth evolved. And the likelihood that there are many other things like Earth outside of our solar system. So what Professor Loeb told me is 60 billion. (laughs) And so that's another thing that informs his thinking. He said, look, there are 60 billion planets in the universe that are plus or minus have similar qualities to Earth. Us having the arrogance to think we're the only ones here, kind of not so much. And so that was another point that he made that I found uh, particularly fascinating as it relates to Oumuamua. But um, anyway, you understand the bigger point, which is he, he, he thinks exactly what you think, which is let's have the conversation, let's debate it. And if we learn that we're wrong or we learn new things or we go a different direction or what have you, then we learn and we grow. It's called uh, being a human being. It's called learning. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Well, Christopher, you have achieved a great deal of success in your life, personally, professionally. I think that many people who are young entrepreneurs would aspire to have a career and a life like yours. I work in a place that is full of young, ambitious, positive, growth-minded, hardworking future leaders. And I would love to give you a chance just to share any message that you would have for the Cutco Vector audience and for anyone else listening in that you think would be valuable for people to hear. Thank you. I got two things for you. The first one's a simple one, but, a, but I think a profound one. My writing partner, Nicholas Cole said this, you are what you subscribe to. 
Be very careful about what you put in your brain. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stupid bullshit today. And more importantly, there's a lot of legendary stuff. The greatest thinkers alive today are active in a way that was not possible before on podcasts, with audiobooks, with books, with blogs, with webinars, with YouTube videos and TED Talks and on and on and on. And, and education is being transformed in front of our very eyes right now. And so this is a dumb time to be dumb, <laughs> right? Because the access to legendary thinkers, there's this app called Masterclass that is amazing. You can learn how to throw three-point shots with, with Steph Curry, and you could take writing lessons from Malcolm Gladwell and, and Margaret Atwood and on and on and on. There's all these amazing ways to learn and develop and grow. You mentioned The Economist. And this year, for the first time in my life, just after New Year's, my wife Carrie and I sat down and we did an audit of everything we subscribed to. Newspapers, magazines, websites, newsletters, podcasts, you name it. And it, it was a lot. And we said, okay, which ones of these are we getting value out of? And we called some of them out. And we said, what are ones that we are not subscribed to or that we only consume a little bit of that we should? And so we, we subscribed to some new things. But we did a conscious curation of what we decided to put in our brains. So I would encourage that. My fear for young people is there's a, the hustle porn stars and the influencers. These people are assholes and they pry on envy. Anybody who tells you you need to build a personal brand is an asshole. Human beings are not brands. Anybody who wants to convince you that you need to be an influencer is an idiot. You don't want to be an influencer. You want to be a result producer. And the degree to which you want to contribute to other people, be a collaborator, be an educator. Look, Dan, you're not an influencer. Fuck that. You're an educator. You're a leader. You're a collaborator. You share. You spread interesting ideas. You engage in public dialogue. That's what we want. And so all these people, these hustle porn stars who tell you you should work 100 hours a week and, and build your personal brand and your value as a human being is the number of likes you get on your fucking TikTok videos. All that stuff is fucking poison. That is stupidity. Influencers are assholes. Gary V, Grant Cardone, John Lee Dumas, Ty Lopez, anybody posing in front of a plane or a car is a douchebag. Gary V telling people to pump out a hundred pieces of content a day to just puke shit on the internet all day. These people are masturbating on social media and they're trying to get you to do the same thing and they're trying to get you to envy them and they sell you bullshit to try to be like them. You don't want to do any of that stuff. We want to learn from the real people, right? We want to learn from the legends and there's lots of them. I mean, Ryan Holiday is unbelievable. His, his work with the Stoics. We just had Bruce Filer on. He wrote this insanely legendary book called Life is in the Transitions. On and on and on. You want to talk about leadership? Read Stanley McChrystal and Chris Fussell, his partner, right? These are the kinds of people. Entrepreneurship, my friend David Cancel, the founder of Drift and the co-founder of HubSpot. He's got an amazing podcast called Seeking Wisdom. There's so many legendary people out there who are authentic, who are contributing, who are participating, who are educating. That's who we want, not these asshole influencers who pry on insecurities. They actually make insecurity worse. 
In the last decade, nobody has done more damage to entrepreneurs and to salespeople and marketing people than these hustle porn stars. And so I would urge people to be very, very thoughtful. We become what we subscribe to. So that's the first one. Before I go to the second one, any thoughts, comments, or <laughs> ideas on that one, Dan? Well, I mean, my thoughts and comments are that I don't really feel like I share your hatred for some of those people. I do feel like I agree with your point that the whole idea of like, bust your ass, work 16 hours a day, work 100 hours a week, that's how you get ahead. There might be seasons for that, but that's not the message that we should be sending to people in the long run. And so I don't like that element of what some of the people uh, you reference, like Gary Vee and Grant Cardone. I don't like some of what that part of their message. I do think you can find some value in what some of those guys share, but I would agree with you that you can find more value elsewhere. And so I personally do not subscribe to anything from Gary Vee or Grant Cardone. But I think that there is certainly a segment of people who do need to develop a greater work ethic. and. To me, it, and so maybe the message of those guys can help those people a little bit, but it's not about working 15, 16 hours a day. I mentioned this to you just the other day. It's a, uh, the, the best term I've seen for work ethic came from a book called The 12 Week Year. And the term was greatness in the moment. And that to me, what work ethic is, is it's that it's bringing your A plus game to what you're choosing to do. It's developing a boundary around your work time and adhering to that boundary so that the things that are more important in your life, you're addressing those and you're spending your time with your family, with your friends, pursuing your hobbies, doing those things you want to do. But when you're working, you're actually working productively and bringing your A plus game. You're not half-assing. You're not being mediocre. You're not failing to learn so that you can be better at what you do. You're really bringing your best to what you do. And that's what makes the rest of your life better anyway. And it was, it's what provides you with the opportunity to have a great lifestyle outside of work. So that's kind of how I view that in terms of the hustle porn stars that you referenced. And even maybe worse than those, you know, the Kardashians and Paris Hilton and all of that. It's absolutely horrible. If you look at where we are with mental health in the United States right now, it arguably has never been worse. And COVID made it worse. And these influencers who sell a dream of becoming famous for the sake of being famous. Right. It used to be that you were famous for a contribution that you made. And now you have these idiots who are just famous for being famous. And I'll tell you, you don't even want to be famous. Being famous is terrible. I know a bunch of famous people. It fucking sucks. When you go out to dinner with them, they can't go out to dinner. Michael Jordan can't move. He can't fucking go anywhere. Being famous is the dumbest thing to want to be imaginable. What we want is we want to be known for the value that we create and deliver for how we partner with people, for the relationships that we have, for the difference that we make. And what we really want is to make a contribution, to make a difference. And the degree do we want to be recognized for that, and I understand the value of that. Well, we don't want to be famous. We don't want to be an influencer. We don't have a personal brand. People aren't fucking brands. We want what Dan Cassetta has, which is called a reputation. 
And that reputation is built on 30 plus years of making a difference, of making a contribution, of driving sales, of helping to develop people, of being empathetic, of caring, of being a good friend, being a good mentor, being a good human being. That's what we want. And so whether it's the Ty Lopez, Gary Vee, all those assholes, or even worse, the Kardashians and all of that, they sell this dream, this envy dream, right? Of being famous for being famous. You don't want that. You want to make a contribution. You want to make a difference. You want to be valued for who you are and what you bring as opposed to stupidities on social media. Yeah. Here, here. And then the last thing I'll leave you with is something that's been on my mind a lot for the last handful of months, Dan. I believe we're in a cocoon time. There's a before C-19 and there will be an after C-19. And right now we are in the cocoon. And extraordinary things have been happening in the cocoon for all the pain and suffering, for all the horrible loss of life, for all the damage that's been done to businesses and and people's net worth and people's incomes. We as a culture, we as a society, and of course, it's not just in our country, it's around the world, it's global, have gone through an extraordinarily painful time here. And we've also had major, major breakthroughs. And there's this interesting thing we we just had. I want to talk about legendary people whose work to get into. Stephen Kotler, he wrote a book about a decade ago called The Rise of Superman. And it's an incredible book. And his new book is one of the most important books of the year. It's called The Art of Impossible. Impossible. Yeah. It's amazing. And he's incredible. And it's research-based. This is not some idiot spewing motivational fucking memes, okay? This is a real guy doing decades of research. Anyway, one of the things we talked about was this thing called the Bannister effect. This guy, Roger Bannister, broke the four-minute mile. And before he broke the four-minute mile, everybody, you know, many people said, the human body was incapable of it. Well, the interesting thing is after Roger broke the four minute mile, of course, the floodgates opened and lots of people did it. And so there's this thing in business, this thing in science that people refer to as the banister effect, which is once something that was considered impossible is possible. It happens. Then a floodgate of innovation of new category creation happens. We've seen a lot of banister effects lately. Of course, we've seen one in, in drug development. 10 to 15 years to bring a drug to market. Well, we did it in nine months, 10 months, right? Look at what what happened with work from home. Look at what's happened with education. Look at what's happening with telemedicine. And on. I mean, there's a million different areas we could point to. As a result of the pain and suffering of C-19, there's been all of these breakthroughs that have happened. And so what does that mean? What I think it means is never before in the history of humanity has the future been sitting right in front of us screaming to be created. Everything about the way we live, work, and play is up for grabs right now in science, in art. Just recently, a piece of digital art sold for $6.6 million. The category of art has been completely transformed. Anywhere you want to look in the areas of how we live, work, and play, there's massive innovation, massive new category design happening like has never happened in the history of humanity. And what I think this means for those of us who are committed to making the world different is we have a unique opportunity on any dimension, whether it's political with civil discourse or how we deal with our customers, how we grow our businesses, how we grow our families. The future needs you. 
And those of us who are in a position to participate in designing a future that we say is going to work can have an exponential impact because there's never been more receptivity. There's never been more technology. There's never been more opportunity. There's never been more willingness to reexamine how we live, work, and play than right now. And the legendary people I know are getting busy in designing the future. And the future needs us. The future needs you. And I would argue, you know, I know many people in your world. They're extraordinary alumni of Cutco. And they're extraordinary people there today. You folks, these folks that you work with, Dan, are the people who make a giant difference. Now's the time. The world needs those people more now and the opportunity to create the future has never been greater than right now. And the future needs you. Such a great message, Christopher. And I really, really appreciate it. It's something I think that a lot of the young people working with us or just coming up in the world anywhere can really take to heart. There is so much opportunity and so much possibility. It's it's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be a young entrepreneur. And the ones who seize those opportunities are going to reap so much great benefits personally, but also they're going to make a big difference for the world. And that uh, to me, in the long run, the legacy we leave will be far more powerful than whatever we earn for ourselves. And that opportunity is at hand right now for everyone. Chris, you are legendary. I really appreciate you making the time to have this conversation with me, to have a, a fun and different, unique episode for number 200. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. I love you, Dan. It's really an honor to be here with you. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. Well, there you have it, folks. That sure was different. A lot of stuff I loved in that conversation, starting with why podcasts are such an interesting and cool medium. Chris talked about why learning differences are not disabilities and about why it's important not to compare ourselves to others too much or in the wrong ways. I really love the idea of conscious curation of what you put into your head. Examine that idea right now as it applies to you. And then, of course, this was a great question. What can you be legendary at that produces massive value? What are your unique gifts, your personal monopoly? What do you want to be known for? Many thanks to my friend Christopher Lockhead for making time for this authentic conversation. In lieu of our standard outro, I'll pay homage to Christopher and follow your different with this today. Today's info was provided solely for informational purposes only. Please consult your doctor, lawyer, accountant, exchange guide, division manager, or region manager before taking action on anything you heard here. This podcast, or shall I say oddcast, was clearly recorded in a studio that contains nuts, or at least one nut, and the participants may have been consuming libations. Thanks, Candy Dandy, for making sure Chris showed up on time. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, John Kane for inspiring me to start this podcast. If you've gotten value from this or any of the previous 199 episodes, please share the podcast right now with at least 199 of your friends and colleagues. 
This podcast is produced by Charlie Connolly and Derek Robichaud. Thanks, guys, for all your hard work producing these first 200 episodes. If anyone listening wants to do a podcast, ask me about PodPost Media. The podcast website was built by Amber Vilhauer and her team at NGNG Enterprises. No guts, no glory. Check us out at changinglivespodcast.com or dancassetta.com and be sure to sign up to get free resources from me, your host, and our amazing guests. I want to thank my friends at Brain Fuel for sponsoring the podcast. Brain Fuel is the new cerebral beverage for top performers like the listeners of this podcast. When you need to stay focused for a big day or important moments, or maybe if you just have dysphuclia like Christopher, Brain Fuel is the magic elixir to sharpen your alertness and decision making. Check out changinglivespodcast.com slash deals to receive 35% off your first purchase. My deepest apologies today go out to Gary V and Grant Cardone. Sorry, fellas, we were hustling too hard to make time for you. Hey, Chris, this music really ties it all together, doesn't it? All right, everyone, be great in the moment, support diversity of thought, make civil discourse, not civil war, and spread podcasts, not viruses. Stay legendary, stay safe, and stay out of the left lane. It's for passing. Remember, the future needs you. So in honor of Christopher Lockhead, follow your different. Follow your different.